It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of murder and violence. The two men came into the Indianapolis McDonald's together around 7 a.m., just after opening time, on Sunday, November 17, 1985. One of the men ordered coffee and sat down to drink it at a table with his friend. The two smoked cigarettes as they chatted. We don't know what they talked or thought about as they sat at that table together. I imagine they spent some time studying the employees getting an idea of how many people were on duty and where exactly they were. They must have counted them one by one as they spotted them at the cash registers or in the kitchen or even sweeping up. There were six of them, five women and one man. 
24-year-old assistant manager, Dwayne Bible. It must have made the two customers feel powerful to think that they were the only ones in the place who knew what was about to happen. Each of the customers carried a gun. One of them had a 45 and the other a 38. Maybe as they nursed the coffee, they occasionally reached into their pockets and touched their weapons, either to make sure they were still there or to remind themselves what they were here for. But they were patient, sipping the cooling coffee, biding their time until just the right moment. Around 8 a.m., after the two had been in the restaurant for close to an hour, a group of three customers left the place. Now, at last, there was no one in the joint except for the two gunmen and the employees. This was it. This was the moment they'd been waiting for. They took out their weapons and headed for the front counter. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is Take Me Instead, The Murder of Dwayne Bible. The men told the employees it was a robbery. Dwayne Bible did what we've all been told to do in a situation like that. He didn't fight or struggle. He just gave the men what they wanted. They took him at gunpoint to the restaurant safe, and Bible emptied it for them, giving the men about $1,000. After that, the robbers ordered the employees to the basement, where the freezer was, and forced them inside it. Bible still didn't fight or try to provoke the men, but he did make a request. If he and his crew would be imprisoned in the freezer, could the robbers at least turn off the freezer first so it would be a little less cold and frigid? The robbers refused. They didn't care about whether or not their victims were comfortable. They started to lock Bible and his crew into the freezer. But one of them hesitated. It wasn't to show mercy, it was because he had an idea. Wouldn't it make sense for them to take a little insurance with them? Why not grab one of the women and use her as a hostage? And he reached for one of the female employees. 
Don't take her, said Duane Bible firmly. She's already scared. Take me instead. The robbers took him up on his offer, pulling him from the freezer and forcing shut the heavy door, leaving the five women in the cold. It is not completely clear what happened next. In press reports at the time, police theorized that Bible may have annoyed the robbers by renewing his pleas to turn off the freezer. And sticking up for his employees does indeed sound like something he would have done. In any case, sealed up in the freezer, the five women soon heard the sound of a gunshot. And then another. After that, silence. Trapped in the freezer, the five women had no idea what exactly they had just heard. And they also didn't know what they should do about it. If they tried to force their way out too soon, maybe the robbers would still be there, and who knows what might happen then. So they waited a bit, and then they tried to force their way out of the freezer. They kicked furiously at the heavy door, and finally it came open. They stepped out of the cold and discovered Dwayne Bible's body. He lay on the floor in a puddle of blood, two gunshot wounds to the back of his head. The women tried to get out of the restaurant to get help, but found that the robbers had somehow locked or blocked the doors so they could not be opened. In their shock and grief and panic, they could not figure out how to get out, and so they shouted and screamed for help. A man trying to get in to order some food heard their cries, and so he went to a nearby gas station and called the police. When the police showed up, they separated the women and got their statements, with a special focus on getting descriptions of the two robbers. And the descriptions they got were good, all consistent with each other. There was a reason for this. The five women had five to ten minutes to view the faces of the robbers. A couple of them even got especially long looks at them, like the woman who took the coffee order from one of the men, or the woman who washed a window near the table the man sat at. The press kept identifying details about the witnesses from the public, but at least some of the five women, like Bible, were African American, and they all agreed that the two robbers were also African American. They described one robber as six foot three and stocky. He had sandy hair, a light complexion, and gray eyes. The other man was darker skinned, about 5 foot 10, around 125 pounds, with acne scars on his face. With the assistance of the witnesses, the police worked up a pair of composite sketches and released them to the media. And then they went to work. They must have felt a great amount of pressure to get results. The story of Dwayne Bible the restaurant manager who sacrificed himself to save his employees, attracted attention not just in Indiana, but all over the country. Everyone who heard it wanted to see justice done for Bible. Now it was up to law enforcement to make that happen. When we talk about their investigation of the Bible murder, it is important to point out right at the beginning that police definitely arrested the wrong man. Around 4 a.m. on November 21, 1985, just a few days after the murder, 
police arrested Charles Button at his home in Indianapolis. According to the press, Button was placed on a 72-hour hold on charges related to the McDonald's robbery and murder. It was unclear what, if any, evidence they had developed against Button before publicly connecting him with an especially notorious murder. A lineup was held a few days after his arrest. None of the witnesses were able to identify the man. So, Chief Trial Deputy Prosecutor David Cook announced that there would be no charges filed against Button, and he was released. And then it happened again. In April of 1986, Deputy Prosecutor Cook announced that law enforcement had identified the robber who actually fired the shots into Dwayne Bible's head. The killer, he said, was a man named Harmon Gray. We should mention that Gray was 54 years old, and, according to witnesses, the gunman was around 30. But the police said that wasn't a problem. Gray just looked younger than his age. Unfortunately, police could not at that time actually locate Gray. But prosecutors formally charged him nonetheless. Now, they just had to find the man. And that took a couple of months. Eventually, they got a tip that Gray was in Princeton, Kentucky, an area where he was known to have family. Indiana police gave this information to Kentucky authorities, and the Kentucky State Police promptly arrested Gray in late June of 1986. Gray submitted to the arrest, but he made it clear he would fight any attempts to extradite him back to Indiana. A hearing was scheduled in Kentucky on whether or not to send Gray to Indiana, and, incredibly, the representatives of the Marion County Sheriff's Department somehow forgot about it and just did not show up. It's our mistake, admitted Lieutenant Jerry Cooper of the Marion County Detective Office. A deputy from Marion County made a point to attend the next hearing. Detective Fred Jackson told the court that two witnesses had identified Gray as the murderer via a photograph. He also indicated that investigators had tied Gray to the crime from information they received from reliable informants. At the same hearing, Gray, perhaps recognizing the writing on the wall, gave up his fight to avoid extradition and indicated he would willingly go to Indiana to face the charges. Shortly after arriving back in the state, Gray was put in a lineup in front of the McDonald's employees. One of them identified him as the gunman, but the others could not. The police speculated that this was because Gray had lost some weight in the months since the murder. Oddly enough, Detective Jackson did make a point that one of the witnesses who failed to identify Gray had instead identified a heavier man who looked a bit like Gray. It is unclear what exactly Jackson thought that proved, or how he imagined it helped the case against Gray. In any case, by December 1986, the one witness who had identified Gray at the lineup began expressing doubts. She told prosecutors that she could not be completely certain that Gray was the man who had robbed the McDonald's. They only had one eyewitness, a prosecution source told the Indianapolis Star, and now she is unsure, so we had no case. At that point, 
the prosecution abruptly dropped all charges against Gray. They did, however, manage to arrest one person, bring him to trial, and convict him. But was that man actually guilty? Police got the crucial tip just two days after the murder of Duane Bible. According to this tip, one of the two McDonald's robbers was a man named Lawrence Gregory Bay. To be clear, Gregory Bay was never thought to be the robber who actually pulled the trigger and killed Bible. But, under the felony murder doctrine, that didn't matter. If a person is murdered during the commission of a felony, then anyone involved in the felony can be held liable for it. At least on the surface, the tip seemed plausible. Gregory Bay had a criminal record. He'd been convicted on various drug and robbery charges. But, of course, before moving forward, the authorities would need more than just a tip from an informant to prove that Gregory Bay actually was there and participated in the crime. They showed each of the five women who had been with Bible in the McDonald's a black and white picture of Gregory Bay. None of them were able to identify him as a robber. Detective Jackson later explained that their inability to make an ID from that first picture was no big deal, that it was because the picture just wasn't of very good quality. The problem now is we have to take his word on that because he subsequently lost this supposed low-quality image. He never even showed it to the court. In any case, the picture of Gregory Bay was reprinted. According to a report in the Indianapolis News, one of the key differences was that in the new version of the picture, they made an effort to lighten Gregory Bay's skin tones. Investigators showed this new photo to the witnesses. They still couldn't identify Gregory Bay as a robber. Police did not give up. They found yet another picture of Gregory Bay and showed that to the witnesses. This time, all of the witnesses finally managed to identify him. And so, in March 1986, police arrested Gregory Bay. Within a few days, they put him in a lineup in front of six witnesses. The five McDonald's employees and one of the customers who had been in the restaurant just moments before the robbery. Only one of those witnesses identified Gregory Bay. We'd expected a better result, admitted Detective Jackson. Jackson and Marion County Prosecutor Stephen Goldsmith were baffled by the failure of the witnesses to identify their suspect. Before letting the witnesses leave... The two men spoke with the witnesses to try to figure out what had happened. They claimed that neither of them put any pressure on the witnesses to identify Gregory Bay. But the fact that they had any conversation with them at all on this point is concerning. In Sawyer v. State, the court wrote that discussions like that might make a witness feel that he has an obligation to choose one of the participants in the display since the police evidently are satisfied that they have apprehended the criminal. The result may be that the witness strains to pick someone with familiar characteristics, or someone who most resembles the actual criminal, or the result may be that the witness will choose the one least dissimilar by the process of elimination. 
In short, conversations like the ones that Detective Jackson and Prosecutor Goldsmith had with the witnesses run a real risk of making the witnesses feel like they've let the police down by not making an identification. And that increases the chances of a faulty identification. We will note, in fact, that one of the witnesses in this case admitted that she felt she had disappointed everyone because she had not made an identification of Gregory Bay. The end result is that, shortly after the failed lineup, a couple of witnesses contacted the police and a second lineup was arranged. This one would not be live, but would instead feature a video recording of the men in the lineup. This second lineup, it should be pointed out, happened after Gregory Bay's picture had appeared in the press. It is easy to imagine that after seeing his image in the newspaper, the women knew which of the people in the lineup to identify. This clearly seems to be something that could taint any identification they subsequently made. In any case, in the second lineup, the other witnesses identified Gregory Bay as the robber. It was lucky for the prosecution that they did. The eyewitness identifications were quite literally the entire case the prosecution had. The police had examined the restaurant for fingerprints, paying careful attention to those areas they imagined the robbers might have touched. None of the prints they recovered could be linked to Gregory Bay. They took shoes from Gregory Bay's apartment and compared them to the shoe prints at the McDonald's. They didn't match. Law enforcement also didn't have any murder weapon at all, let alone the ability to link it to Gregory Bay. So whether or not Gregory Bay got convicted depended entirely on how credible the eyewitnesses seemed in court. They ended up telling very compelling stories. There were, you'll remember, two robbers, both of them African-American. One of them was said to be darker-skinned. The police said this man was Gregory Bay. The other man was lighter-skinned. Police believed it was this man who fired the shots that killed Dwayne Bible. It was the darker-skinned man who ordered coffee at the counter. He even made multiple trips back to get refills. The woman at the counter therefore got several opportunities to get a good look at him. She told the court that that man was Lawrence Gregory Bay. Another one of the employees happened to be cleaning windows right near the table where the two robbers sat. She told the court that the dark-skinned man in particular kept staring at her as he drank his coffee. She identified that man as Lawrence Gregory Bay. Two of the other employees also told the court that Gregory Bay was the robber with the darker complexion. When four people who have lived through that sort of terror look you in the eye and identify a particular person as the author of their tragedy, it is difficult to calmly analyze the flaws in how the identifications were made and to carefully weigh all the factors and arrive at a reasoned conclusion. The temptation is to instead just believe them and to do what you think will help them get the justice they deserve. So, based on nothing but the eyewitness testimony, the jury convicted Gregory Bay. 
and Marion County Circuit Judge Roy F. Jones subsequently sentenced him to 281 years in prison. Judge Jones explained his thinking in a speech to the court. This court is tired of people coming before the bench who have robbed and killed people employed in the fast food business. Just because they are trying to make an honest living, they are vulnerable to robbers who take advantage of them. This sentence will give a message to some parole board 30 to 40 years from now that I intend for you to die in prison. We completely understand and share the anger of Judge Jones. Since we've started researching this podcast, we've encountered a seemingly endless stream of sorrow. Story after story about good people being cut down just because they happen to work at a place that seems like an easy target to someone who wants to steal some quick cash. None of those people deserve what happened to them. And the deaths of each and every one of them infuriates and grieves us more than we can express. But even in this litany of tragedy, the murder of Dwayne Bible cuts extra deep. The only reason he was taken from this world was because he cared enough about his workers to stand up for them, to offer to take the place of the robber's chosen hostage, to plead with them to turn off the freezer so his employees would be more comfortable. If Bible had been just a little less brave and noble, he might still be with us today. So yes, the man who put the bullets in Bible's head deserved to die in prison. And that man's companion, who stood by and did not protest when Dwayne Bible's life was taken, he deserved to die in prison too. But was Lawrence Gregory Bay that man? Based on the evidence presented at the trial, the most we can say is that we just don't know. We can say that since the only evidence against him was the tainted eyewitness testimony, neither of us would have voted to convict him. Nowadays, of course, you would expect for a case such as this to include some sort of DNA evidence that would offer a definitive answer to a suspect's guilt or innocence. But back in the 80s, DNA was just not used in our legal system. Luckily, though, the evidence was preserved, and in 2006, after being imprisoned for 20 years... Gregory Bay got the court to allow DNA testing to be done on that material. To be more specific, the items to be tested were a coffee cup, coffee lid, a stir stick, and two cigarette butts that had been taken from the table where the robbers sat. They also tested a cigarette butt they had discovered on the floor near the restaurant safe. Apparently, it had come from one of the robbers as well. Unfortunately, There was not enough DNA on the cigarette butt from the floor or the coffee lid or the stir stick to enable the lab to do any testing. But they were able to test the other items. And the results were surprising. The coffee cup and one of the two cigarette butts both contained DNA from the same male source. And that source was not Lawrence Gregory Bay. What made this especially interesting was that two of the eyewitnesses specified that the man they saw order the coffee and drink it and come back for refills was indeed Gregory Bay. So if he was there, and if there was any DNA on the cup, it quite clearly should have belonged to him. 
The fact that it instead belonged to another man is a great argument for his innocence. And there's more. The second cigarette butt taken from the robber's table contained a mix of DNA from at least two different men. Neither of these men was Lawrence Gregory Bay. The rather obvious implication of this is that the cigarette was handled by both robbers. Perhaps one of the men handed it to the other. Since neither of the men who handled the cigarette was Gregory Bay, this becomes another argument for his innocence. But, unfortunately for Gregory Bay, the court did not see it that way. The court rather casually dismissed the fact that the coffee cup DNA did not match. They simply claimed the other robber must have drank some coffee too, even though Gregory Bay was the one who supposedly ordered it and got the refills. As for the cigarette butt that had DNA from at least two men, well, the state hand-waved that away by arguing that that was the likely result of the evidence being mishandled by a lab technician. They offered no evidence to indicate something like that actually occurred, but the court decided that it didn't really matter that the DNA evidence in this instance was, quote, consistent with the other physical evidence recovered from the restaurant in that it neither inculpated nor exculpated Gregory Bay as one of the robbers. With those words, the court denied Gregory Bay's request for a new trial. Judge Jones ended up getting his wish. Gregory Bay died in 2009, still in prison. There's no satisfying conclusion here. I wish there was. Duane Bible, a terrific person, lost his life in a senseless murder. Lawrence Gregory Bay spent the final decades of his life incarcerated for that crime, even though there's a great argument to be made that he had nothing to do with it. Bible's family and friends never got to see their lost loved one get the justice he deserved. The only person in this story who got a happy ending was the man who least deserved it, the person who shot Dwayne Bible in the head. It is true. No one knows where he is or what happened to him after he walked out of the McDonald's with $1,000 in his pocket after executing Bible. But he is likely still alive and out there, enjoying his kids and grandkids. And perhaps sometimes he even remembers that day in November 1985 and smiles in remembrance that he was clever or lucky enough to get away with murder. For this episode, we relied on the work of Patricia Hagen, Joseph Gillardin, and Cheryl Baltzer from the Indianapolis Star, Welton W. Harris and Mac Trusnick from the Indianapolis News, Bob Matyai from the Evansville Courier, and also reporting from the Associated Press and the UPI. We also consulted a couple of court cases, Gregory Bay v. Hanks and Gregory Bay v. Mines. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at M Sheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. 